This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Miss Jess Chow, and she is the founder of a brand, a new brand called Vera. Jess, hi. Hey there. So good to have you on the show. I'm really excited to talk about you because you represent, and and I know this is a big responsibility, but you represent this new crop of enthusiast entrepreneurs. We've had maybe a couple of individuals such as yourself on the show, but what I think is really important to tell people is that in addition to these storied old watch brands and the big companies and the corporate-owned ones, there's this wonderful ecosystem of brands that started recently that are founded by people that appreciate the product. And I guess my first question is, we know who started the brand. We know a little bit about why you started the brand. We'll talk more about that. But who who do you intend to be the wearers of your watch? I think this is always an interesting thing. When someone starts a new watch brand because they like it, who do you want wearing your watches? Yeah, definitely. Um, when we started, we really thought about who was going to wear it and where they're going to wear it to. And I think one of the underlying themes for us is people that really care about how they spend their time. For us, um, you know, I was doing an agency job and I felt like I was kind of going through all the motions of what I was supposed to do, but kind of lacking things that were bringing me meaning. No creativity, huh? <laughs> yeah, Is that you what know? it was? No creativity. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay. you know, going through kind of the motions and bringing in that art and the science is something that's really appealing to me. And I've always wanted to start a business of my own. And watchmaking is actually a bit in my blood. Um, my my mom and my dad actually met at Baselworld in the 1980s. That's so, romantic. Yeah. And every year they, they used to go around my birthday. So it's something that I kind of grew up with. And I kind of went down a different path growing up. I was interested in business and kind of building that up. So I kind of built my career as a management consultant, but I really wanted to kind of own something of mine. And when I turned 30, you know, just something changed about how you view time. And um, that's when I actually ended up meeting my business partner, Sunny Fong. He is a fashion designer who won Project Runway Canada. And he told me a story about um, how he started wearing his uh, dad's automatic watch when he turned 40 okay. as a way to remind him to keep moving because, you know, when you don't wear an automatic watch, you know, time literally stops. And <laughs> that was such a romantic story. And we started talking about it to our friends and we found out that a lot of people didn't really know what an automatic watch was, how it worked and how you don't need a battery. So who, who, are, who are you asking? Because in like my little world, and it sounds mm-hmm. like most of your world, people do know. And it's, you're right. Most mainstreamers out there don't know this, but what, what, was the, what was the location of this focus group? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think even within the watch community, um, there's a lot of technical components of, you know, watchmaking specifically, and how each of these kind of pieces kind of all fit together to work together to tell time forever. And, um, you know, the regular person who might be wearing an Apple watch might be, you know, wearing uh, a quartz watch, for example, as a fashionable timepiece. They might 
be aware of kind of the automatic watch, but when you kind of get into, you know, do you know how it actually works? You know, um, it's kind of an intimidating space. So what we really wanted to kind of do was kind of uncover that and share so much of kind of behind the craft, sorry, the behind the scenes craftsmanship, because that beauty and all of the handcrafted pieces and all the time that it really takes to create a well-crafted watch, um, people don't necessarily get to see a lot of those behind the scenes moments. So now, I, I want to <laughs> stop here for a second because Please. you're we're, we're we're talking about something that I think is not to gloss over. Usually mm -hmm. when people start a business, like you know, you you've been to business school, it's like, here's the market need, here's the competition, here's how my thing has a competitive advantage or whatever. And if you've noticed this entire conversation has been about emotion and not mm -hmm. about the market and consumer and consumer whatever. That's a challenge, right? Because you growing up with watches sort of have this implicit sense of why they're cool, right? Mm -hmm. But what you've noticed is that if you don't have that experience, trying to explain to someone why they would want a mechanical watch is, for lack of a better term, a bit of a fuzzy argument. You know, in, in essence, it's like, why? Because it'll make you feel good. How do you find that out? Wear it for a while and you'll see. But that's a very complicated thing to communicate. So just sort of at the outset, did you realize that the thing you were trying to market wasn't as straightforward as the vast majority of other business ideas? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think um, when we started this business, there were a lot of things that we could have done that was kind of the easy route. And we kind of decided to do the the kind of hard way at every conjecture. Um, Sunny and I are kind of interested in kind of pushing the envelope and experimenting with things that are new. So even the fact that we decided to do a rectangular case watch, for example, um, when I talked to my family about it, um, they were like, hey, like, there's not a lot of those on the market. Like they might not sell very well. And it's hard um, to do an angular case. There's like a small number of really good ones on the market. You know, have your the Cartier Santos, the Reverso, you know, there's mm -hmm. a couple of others out there. But like for the hundreds and hundreds of popular round case watches, doing one that is square or rectangular is hard. So let's let's talk right about that. The 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 watches, you'll have to go to the Vieran website to see them, of course. We're not gonna be able to explain it, but it has a rectangular case and of course, it's a bit of a familiar look, but you did something unique here. You know, mm -hmm. let's just let's just jump into that. You know, you, you're selling an emotional product, so there isn't exactly like this is what the product demands. So you get to have, I guess, as much creative freedom as you want. So then you get you get into that, and then how do you result in what I'm holding in my hand here? Yes, definitely. Um, one of the advantages I think that uh, we had coming into this was we had access really to uh, a watchmaking studio in Le Chaux-de-Fonds, Switzerland. And um, when we were learning about kind of watchmaking uh, outside of, of course, the really top-end brands that have their own studios, a lot of newer brands out there um, end up having to kind of purchase parts that are manufactured at the same places and kind of piece together. And one of the things that was really important to us was the ability to really bespoke design every component uh, to really tell the story we wanted. So the rectangular face watch, uh, we realize why we don't see a lot of those is because they're incredibly difficult to engineer. Oh yeah. Um, being water, able to, water resistance is one thing. All those corners, all those straight lines and curves. And I think a lot of people don't um, understand that, you know, to be able to bevel metal um, at that precision, um, it, there's a lot of heat involved. And as heat 
um, you know, heats up metal as and then cools down. It, it warps a lot. So the the technical and mechanical precision that it really requires is uh, at a much higher level. Um, and that was really attractive to us. Um, another a component that we didn't really see, um, I'm a female and a lot of watches uh, that I saw that were targeted to women were very small or delicate and feminine. And that wasn't necessarily my aesthetic. So um, Sunny was really, uh, spent a lot of time on the size and shape of the rectangular face. Uh, it's gender neutral and it's really designed to be the perfect size for kind of every wrist. Uh, I learned that apparently my wrist is uh, below the normal. So when we were first developing the watch, um, the watch actually didn't fit my wrist because um, I was below the average. <laughs> so we spent... Like you, a, you have small wrists is what you mean? Mm -hmm, yeah, okay. my wrists are very tiny. So For a man, I have small wrists. I, I, I get it. I'm <laughs> always the person who's like, sorry, brand, your strap is too long for me, feeling not so great about that. I, I, I yes. feel your pain. Yes. So can you swap it out? And so we spent extra time to make sure, for example, um, every link in the bracelet was removable. So it really fit every single size. Um, and this idea of inclusion and, um, you know, inspiring everybody to kind of power their time was important to us. Okay. So you're, you're we're, you know, we're jumping around here a little bit and I, I want to go back to some of those other topics, but I guess it's important to re realize that even as simple as let's make a watch, can mm -hmm. be a, a, a very big rabbit hole to jump down. And you went to a company that assists you to make your design in Switzerland. Now, you went, well, I, not the most expensive route, but but like definitely in the upper tier uh, of cost. And you, you do get what you pay for in this industry. Was that your first choice? Or did you try to go to different routes before you realized, wow, we really need to go to some shop that can do everything, that can listen, um, did you go straight there or was there a shopping around part of the experience when it came to, you know, who's going to be your supply partner? Yes, that's a great question. Um, when we thought about creating a piece that's going to last, um, we really wanted to kind of go against the fast fashion realm. We wanted to create a piece that would actually last you forever. And the, the pinnacle of watchmaking really is Swiss made. Um, when we were going through the process of it, uh, it was a lot more effort. And a lot of people told us, you know, young people today might not care about it. Like you're doing a lot of work for something that maybe people don't care about. But we really disagreed. Um, we really felt like quality and respecting these generations of watchmakers that really hone a craft and really celebrating that heritage was important. So uh, we knew we wanted to make it Swiss made and we went straight to Le Chaux de Fond when we decided to go with really with the automatic timepiece. Now, tell me about focus group testing and things like that. The watch industry doesn't do a lot of that. Maybe you haven't done a lot of that, but I always found that that's helpful because the proprietor you know, has their own tastes and experience. You know, you said you grew up around a lot of watches and things like that. And it can be very surprising, if not illuminating, when you ask, you know, a, a room full of strangers what they feel, what they perceive. Did you do anything like that? Yeah, definitely. What was that like? I, I, I'm so curious. We did some initial um, kind of research with uh, just online consumers. And the big takeaway that I got from that was that a lot of people want to get into watches, they're really interested, but it's a really intimidating category and uh, they might not know how to get into it. Uh, 
watch collectors. Uh, they there's a lot of kind of the heritage brands out there that everyone knows, um, but. Um, kind of the small independent brands and supporting some more of these independent watchmakers, it's it's kind of hard to to kind of break through the noise. So we really wanted to kind of create something that was different, uh, that really celebrated um, the time that was now and what people were interested in today. And we took a very uh, modernist approach um, to kind of the design to try to create something that you didn't necessarily see that was different um, in kind of the vast uh, space of watches. So what I'm hearing, and I'm, I'm translating a little bit based upon what I know, mm-hmm. but you needed to create an object that was a watch that was accessible, but was also different enough to get attention. And I like to use the word flirt, mm-hmm. right? Because in, in this industry, not just the marketing, but the product itself, when you see it, has to flirt with you. What I mean, it has to... Uh, dazzle you with something you haven't seen and make you want to hunt after it. Make mm-hmm. you want to say, what is that? I want to know more. I want to understand that shape or where it came from. Now, again, this stuff, again, appears easy and obvious on the outside, but starts to get into a level of creativity that literally has no answers or best practices. At what point did you realize that you were just going to have to make some decisions based upon like gut instinct um, you know, uh, decision-making skills, and that's that's the best you could go with? Yeah, I think at, at every conjecture of the design process, <laughs> actually. It's a great question. Um, we really pushed the envelope in terms of experimentation. So we started with the matte white version, which I think you have in front of you today. Uh, I, I, I have a matte black one. Okay, perfect. And there's one with like a crocodile print dial, which I think is neat. And then there's a stainless steel on bracelet. Yes, so the stainless steel bracelet. Um, we wanted to kind of create a classic white face watch version. Oh, there's a sticker over it. That's why I didn't see it yet. <laughs> I'm going to talk about that sticker. I'm going to talk about that sticker. Please go on. Okay, matte white dial. Of course. Uh, and you'll see a lot of, uh, there's a trend towards kind of minimalism, but um, it's not necessarily minimalism that we're achieving here. Um, we really highlighted kind of the tone-on-tone design. So there's actually a lot to look at, even though it looks like uh, very simple. We have the stainless steel with the matte white, as well as the uh, 18-karat gold ring that's around the outside of the watch. And that's kind of our signature um, that you'll see across every version for us. Um, A little, you know, piece of luxury that um, you can kind of highlight during your day. And it's these kind of little special details that hopefully kind of bring luck as well as bring, uh, you know, a smile to people when they're, when they're kind of going about their day and helping them, you know, feel more powerful to conquer whatever challenges that they might be kind of going through. So let's go back to this focus group testing and things like that. Mm-hmm. And you said that there's a lot of people that you identified as wanting to get into watches, Right. Now, I I don't disagree, but again, I want to sort of point out that this behavior is fascinating because what you have, and I don't know how well it's represented, is aspirational watch enthusiasts. These aren't Mm -hmm. people who are watch enthusiasts yet, but they aspire to be an enthusiast of a watch. It's sort of like an aspirational, um, you know, uh, uh, art enthusiast or a wine enthusiast. Like, Mm -hmm. I see people saying like, oh, I'd love to be someone who can talk intelligently about you know, 20th century impressionism, or I know all the great, you know, wineries in South Africa or or something like that. In watches, you have the same thing. 
And of course, it has very little to do with actual functionality. You don't need to be a watch enthusiast to tell the time well. Mm-hmm. You can buy a, a, an inexpensive Casio watch. will do that fantastically. What do you think is the role of this sort of aspirational enthusiasm? See, I got into watches because I was helplessly addicted to these weird little things. Mm-hmm. I was never like, boy, it'd be so great to be into watches. But today with social media and things like that, you can see that there's this community of watch lovers. You may not understand the product, but you can see that there's this robust social community. So tell me, again, you're a little bit younger than me. I'm 39. What exactly is it about a watch collector, at least in, 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 in sort of social visibility terms, that is attractive to people who are not into it? I know it's a hard question, but I, I really want your opinion here. Yeah, I think uh, it's definitely a multi-layered question. I think whenever I think about watches, and this is a theme that we saw across people, the first thing you think about is, does it look good? And so when we looked at it, we really wanted to kind of double down on the design aspect, Um, working with Sunny Fong with the fashion background and being able to have something that's wearable and comfortable on your wrist was something that was very important to us. And then as you think about really the differences in terms of watch collectors, we wanted to kind of experiment with certain design themes that were modernist. So uh, this collection, for example, is inspired by modernist architecture. Uh, A lot of kind of Mies van der Rohe, um, he has a lot of these black-on-black buildings. So we wanted to kind of experiment with kind of that with our next watch as well, uh, the black diamond one that you see there. Um, As you mentioned before, what kind of changes or or technologies did we kind of play with, you know, to even achieve something that was just an all matte black watch. uh, It wasn't something that was standard out there. So we just talked to a whole bunch of different suppliers to figure out, hey, there's a new, you know, advanced diamond-like carbon technique, uh, a technology that we could use to plate all the watches that not only made it matte black and stylish, but it was also making the whole watch scratch resistant. So we kind of continued to work with these uh, watchmakers to push the boundaries to see what we can do to really bring forth these kind of design ideas and uh, kind of lead with that. But of course, providing a quality piece that was still an accessible price point because um, usually when people think about an automatic watch, you know, people think about a something that's more than $10,000. And for us, making something that was around 2000 and having you feel good about kind of investing in yourself and really investing in a piece that celebrates your story, not just yeah. the heritage of other other brands was important to us. So what's interesting is as someone who's been in the watch industry, you know, a large part of your life, you've seen from the side a lot of the different things that brands do that captivate you from a design perspective to the way that they fit into lifestyle to the way they incorporate history and culture. And you naturally want to have all those things in your brand, right? Mm -hmm. And what you do is you realize that the brands that have a few of those or multiple of those gain those over a very, very long period of time. So you begin by having sort of like a business plan where you want your brand to have these things, but then you later recognize you can't just put it on a list and have it happen. It -hmm. happens over time. So you're telling me all these interesting stories like the the little gold ring, you know, around around the crystal and stuff like that. And and the funny thing is people are not going to notice that now but you're sort of building potential heritage for yourself in the future. And what you sort of need to do is just have a lot, a lot of patience and momentum because the things you want, you have to build and develop over time. You can't just build them into a business plan, which again, you sort of realize through the process. But it's interesting that 
if there was a watch brand that could do all the things that I'm sure you had in mind, it'd be a super brand, right? Like even Rolexes can't even do all that stuff. So did you ever sort of have to step back multiple times and humble yourself and be like, wow, I don't know if we can do that as fast as I want? Yeah, it's always a tension and it's so ironic because it's the concept of time, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, look, let's look at brands like Audemars Piguet. It's a very popular example. And, you know, the, the Royal Oak is a successful product for them. It has been for a long time. But mm-hmm. it took a very, very, very long time for it to become popular uh, by certain accounts over 30 years. Mm-hmm. And now there's all these amazing stories about it they had to build it over time, but they had to basically invest in something for a long period of time without a lot of return. Do you think that that's possible today? You're, you said you come from management consulting. Are there business cases where someone can spend 20 years or more developing something without too much of an expectation of return, and then boom, finally it becomes like a, a, a an icon of luxury? Yeah, that's a great question. And I always think about why, why, why you started something? Why did I get into this business? Um, is it for something that's a quick return or is it something that is going to really leave a mark on the industry and leave a mark on the world? And for us, we're really purpose-driven. And through even just talking with entrepreneurs, uh, we've heard that just us trying something new and really trying to expand, you know, the watchmaking, um, community and try to bring more people on board that are interested um, is something that's inspiring them to really start um, something of their own. So um, I think there's a lot of benefits that um, you can generate in the world. And a lot of times I think we talk about the monetary aspect, which is of course important. Um, But, you know, our objective has always been very purpose-led and um, we don't really want to be a flash in the pan. So building something long-term that is going to last is something that is our goal and our vision. So I'm going to translate that. Watch brand, the perfect business where you're not in any rush to make money. <laughs> 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 in, in a sense, it's true. I mean, there are a large number of successful watch brands, which essentially are, are vanity companies for people who have a portfolio of, we'll call them boring companies, Mm-hmm. And the, going back to your question, the reason why the brands exist, and I've asked the owners, and the term is fun. We want the brand for fun. We want to make fun things. Mm-hmm. We want to meet fun people. We want to go fun places. We want to have fun events. And we don't have to worry about all the unfun things that typify, you know, maybe their other business holdings and things like that. And when you look at it that way, you recognize that this basically has like has to be like the sl- the slush fund of entrepreneurial endeavors, right? Because it's not something like you said that you make a quick turnaround. You don't just go out there, make watches, have them delivered, sell them, and make money. You're you're investing in the creation of an asset, which is your product, mm-hmm. that does not have a market yet. So it's kind of like uh, cryptocurrencies, right? You have to have <laughs> the currency first. Then you have to tell the market they're cool. Mm -hmm. Then you have to increase demand while Mm -hmm. then later increasing supply. But when it comes to sort of chicken the egg thing, there's no built-in demand. Like if you make a copy of a Rolex, Mm -hmm. Rolex made the demand for you, right? Rolex said, this look is popular. If you can trick people into thinking that uh, this product is ours, but it's actually yours, you you may get some sales. But if you want to do the same thing we did, you're going to have to make your own demand. And what's it like as an entrepreneur 
doing something which there's you have to build demand. Because I, I haven't been to business school, but I do understand that an important lesson is that you tend to make money faster if you produce a product that th- the consumer market wants, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of uh, examples right now of a lot of replication that's happening across many industries, uh, not just within watchmaking. It's never really appealed to us. Uh, we are kind of on the early adopter side, being able to kind of push at the forefront of innovation and new ideas and work with creatives that are, you know, at that headspace and energy is something that really excites us. It is why I get up in the morning really passionate about uh, building this brand over time because we're able to continue to learn and stay curious and push, you know, uh, an industry forward that has been around for forever. Um, As a female also, I think be able to tell a bit of a different story and um, getting more women into the the watch collecting space as well as um, highlighting more stories within the watchmaking space is something that will help all communities. So this is an interesting point. I want to ask you this. Um, yeah. Compared to women, men have less, what I'll call them, accessory hobbies. Mm-hmm. Women have all kinds of cool stuff you can be into, jewelry and shoes and handbags and makeup. And these are all pursuits unto themselves. Mm-hmm. They have their own luxury products, their own level of sophistication, skill. Um, and men often like to joke that we basically have watches, is the things we can wear. I mean, we have cars, yeah. but you can't wear your car. We have all kinds of things we're into. Mm-hmm. So men get to sort of hyper-focus around this. Like if you care about how you look and you're a guy, watches yeah. are going to get into it. But you can care about how you look as a, as a woman in today's society and have so many other things to be into, you could never get into watches in the first place. So the question is, make a pitch to women out there who care what they look about that it might be a good idea to also incorporate an understanding about watches. Like, what's that going to add? Like, you're really good at makeup. You really got your handbag game down. Be into watches because of X. The beauty, really, in watches is that it's actually a mechanical timepiece that moves and is a tool that can kind of last you forever. Um, Outside of the fact that it is an investable piece that is not just, um, you know, an accessory, but uh, really a timekeeping device. Most people, when they think about watches, has a very sentimental value. For me, it's not necessarily just an object. Um, it's a piece of my heritage. It's a piece of my family. And I'm curious to hear, actually, maybe from you, Ariel, like how you relate to watches as well. But there's a lot of personal stories that happen. And I think like bringing that personal and sentimental value into a piece is really important a lot of women have a lot of accessories that kind of come and go, but we really wanted to design something that could be on your wrist every day and be kind of your lucky charm or, you know, the cape to help you feel like a superwoman uh, or superman, however you want to kind of define that um, so that you can kind of tackle your day, um, something that's going to be with you every single day of your life. So that's interesting. Yeah, that's very that's very similar to sort of the, the pitch for men. And that is this thing that you can have on you a long time. In fact, I've seen more women who are wearing a watch they've been wearing for 10, 20 plus years than men. And you don't see that with like shoes. No one's like, I've worn these same shoes for 25 years. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't be proud of that. But with a watch, you know, it's like this. I know this Cartier is all beat up, but Mm -hmm. it's got a story behind it. I mean, I I can't tell you how many times I've had that literal conversation. 
And I love that you said when you wear it, you feel like a, a Superman or Superwoman. Mm-hmm. Because I, I have a little bit of a different way of saying it, but when I wear a watch, it helps me manifest this personality I want to be that day. When exactly. I wear the, the diver's watch, you know, I'm going to go out on some adventure. I, mm-hmm. I, I, you can throw anything at me. Um, I'm going to be purposeful and I'm going to be precise and I have a mission, right? Exactly. Or when I wear that like weird artsy watch that people are going to be like, what's that? It's I'm expressive. I'm an individualist. I'm opinionated. I care about culture. And and sometimes it's as simple as, you know, there's a there's someone in a movie or a celebrity that wore it. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to feel a little bit like I have their attitude today. And and that sounds childish, but that's actually a good thing. Because watches are the few things that allow us to play in a mature way that's socially acceptable as adults. It's expensive, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but it's a socially acceptable way of playing with toys in public, and there's mm-hmm. value to that. Absolutely. And I love what you had mentioned earlier about, you know, there's so many facets to your personality and what you want to kind of highlight and different things bring out different facets. And depending on how you feel that day, for example, uh, it's really gray right now in Toronto today. I have kind of the black croc leather watch because it's a really fashion moment. It kind of reminds me of a leather cuff, and every single time I put it on, I feel really powerful. So that's how I wanted to feel kind of on this call today. So I decided to go with the leather on leather. Before we go any further, a quick announcement, and we thought we would tell you, the listeners of the podcast, all about it first. A blog to watch is hiring. We are looking for a social media manager to look after all the Instagram, Facebook, comment section on the website, all the social media stuff that you can think of. So if you're interested, get your CV together and any relevant experience and email the boss man himself, Ariel, at ablogtowatch.com. We really look forward to hearing from you. So with that done, it's back to the show. So tell me more about the designs that you have right now. Just explain to people like the core looks, just in your words. Absolutely. So we have five styles in the OG Automatic Collection. The matte white I mentioned was kind of the first one. And then we experimented with color to create a matte black version that was all black on black. Then we were like, hey, let's experiment with diamonds. So we decided to create a white diamond version. And because the diamonds created a bit of a sparkle, uh, we decided to add a little bit of a geometric uh, pattern that's etched onto the dial just to add some depth and dimension um, and create something that was a little bit more special. So there's a white diamond uh, and a black diamond version that features uh, 31 black diamonds uh, on that piece. Yeah, I'm looking at that one right now here. Mm-hmm. Is it so? So I, I like diamonds as a guy, but a lot of guys are weird about diamonds. Um, could you tell the guys out there that are weird about wearing diamonds why it's okay for men to wear diamonds? Diamonds last forever, right? Yeah, but come on, like you'd have to have a little bit more of a male focused pitch there. Like they're nervous, they're afraid it's going to make them look feminine. Like as a mm-hmm. female, yep. when you see a man wearing a watch with diamonds, what what do you think? What are your impressions? Yeah, I usually think that man is stylish and it depends on the design of the watch, right? I guess um, diamonds we, could go bad real fast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and depending on the design, you know, it could very easily be tacky. So I, I appreciate the question. Um, we wanted to kind of make sure that the diamonds were there, but they were subdued, right? So um, we added that pattern to kind of counteract some of the sparkle um, so that it's 
balanced properly, that it's not too bling bling. But when you look at it in depth, uh, you can kind of see um, kind of that special quality and to add a little bit of a, a glisten to your everyday. A little bit of a glisten. I like that. I mean, mm-hmm. I like diamonds not because of the way, the way they show off, but jewelry is nice looking. Our eyes are attracted to sparkly things. And, you know, like the same way you can appreciate a cool matte surface, you can appreciate a diamond. Um, It's true that diamonds have a bad reputation for being a show-off thing, because they Mm -hmm. certainly are. But you can appreciate them as a design element just the same. And, you know, does it have to be a diamond? No. But if it's like a fake diamond or something like that, it won't look the same. Um, Exactly. I'm okay with a good moissanite or something like that. But at the end of the day, there's also a romance to these natural materials that someone dug up out of the ground. And it goes back to this romantic notion. And the amount of time it takes for people to design a jewelry watch or let alone set stones is very similar to watchmaking in that it's hard. It takes time. You know, Rolex, for example, does very well with these, you know, the the, the rainbow uh, bezels. Mm-hmm. And what people don't really know is sort of what goes into this. And and Rolex themselves has told me it takes about two weeks for each bezel. Why? Mm-hmm. First of all, you know, you, you don't just go to the store and order stones of the pre- perfect color or size or clarity. You have to find them. So yeah. first there's this department which like literally sources stones and puts them into little drawers of colors and shades and things like that and size. And it's a rainbow. So it's like a bunch of colors, right? <laughs> you have mm-hmm. to wait till you get all of them. And then you have to make sure that, you know, these are, these are stones. This is natural stuff. It's not all perfectly geometric. Cutting them the right way is important. Setting them carefully. This is not a mechanical work that a robot can do. It's its own area of appreciation. And upon learning this myself, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, wow, jewelry and all that stuff is cool. Now, I don't, I don't wear jewelry. You know, I have my watch. That's, that's, I, sometimes I wear two. I have two wrists, but I don't go beyond that. But boy, can I appreciate jewelry completely outside of its ability to add a dazzle and, and, and be sort of a bling object. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And uh, if you don't mind me nerding out a little bit Go um, for it. on kind of how we developed the indices for, for the watches, we had started with the matte black and matte white version, as I mentioned, and our indices are quite thin and tone on tone on the watch. Um, and so when we just decided to develop the diamond version, being able to actually create a index that was thin enough that still replicated the design, uh, yet secure enough to be able to be punctured through the dial. Um, and of course, you mentioned being able to find the stones. Um, each piece of that was all created by hand by different people. So we really needed to kind of work with a, a team and coordinate um, and really discuss and collaborate how we were going to achieve the design we wanted, but figuring out the engineering um, and the mechanics behind it took a lot of time. Okay. So we're going to go to Project Runway. Uh, I think was it Canada that or you know, I, I, this is, again, I have not seen this show. This is yeah. obviously, a, was this a fashion competition show? Is that what this is? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so fashion designers. Me- Help me explain the show and then and then um, Sonny, uh, how does he come out of this? How does he work with you? And why is why is this type of person good for an art- entrepreneurial startup watch brand? Absolutely. So um, Sonny's background is in fashion design. Um, he has a women's wear label named Vok, and he has dressed, you know, um, celebrities on red carpets as well as, you know, 
the Emmys, the Oscars. Um, and uh, 10 years ago, he was on Project Runway Canada, uh, which is a fashion designer competition. And he actually won that season. Um, and he is known for creating really modernist designs that are timeless. Um, really thoughtful cutting to make sure, um, you know, shapes are accentuated and it works for everybody and that you feel confident putting the pieces on. So um, we had met and we were chatting about kind of my family background. And he actually told me a funny story about how he entered a watch design competition when he was 10 years old. Oh, wow. And um, he didn't win, but he's always had a dream of designing a watch. And um, we realized we had a unique opportunity. Uh, usually with watchmaking, um, you know, the there's a lot of uh, technical designers, uh, but bringing that fashion element um, into each component, making sure that it looks good on the wrist from every angle, that it fits properly, that you know, the bracelet as well as the buckle sat nicely and didn't dig into um, your skin. All of those kind of small details that may have been overlooked in the past, we wanted to kind of spend a lot of time to um, develop um, so that this product was something that um, could be on your wrist every day. Now, when you work with a fashion designer, um, how do you work with them creatively? They have a lot of ideas. You have a lot mm -hmm. of ideas. You know, one of the things I learned is that working with creatives is a, is a skill as well as a talent, right? Like you yes. have to understand it. Um, and maybe you're a creative, I don't know. But um, I think that Sonny would probably be characterized as a creative, right? Yes. How, do you, how do you harness that energy? How do you wrap a business around it? You know, part of my background is I went mm -hmm. to law school to become an entertainment lawyer. And essentially mm -hmm. that is like talent wrangling. You know, like left to your own devices, you will ruin yourself. But with proper <laughs> adult supervision, you could, you know, you could make some money, Mr. or Mrs. Creative Person. So yep. in a sense, you, again, looking from the outside, you might be in that position where it's like you have this creative energy that you need to harness and mm -hmm. somehow build a business structure around, you know, talk, talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. Um, firstly, I was just really inspired by his talent. Um, not only is he just a creative in terms of fashion, but he is a creative across many facets. And I constantly learn from him, which is super cool. Um, but we always say that uh, he's the art and I'm the science. And uh, there are a lot of times in which we don't necessarily fully agree that we're on opposite sides. Um but those are also the opportunities and the times when I know we're actually onto something. Um, not a lot of people out there have these types of tense conversations. You know, how do you engage with the consumer, make a profit, as well as um, bring forth this creative idea? All of these tension points need to be considered. And so um, having a partner that um, is so open in terms of communicating uh, has been really, really eye-opening and we've been able to kind of create a lot of new ideas and um, really push each other um, whenever we actually disagree. So it's it takes time and patience, but it's those times when I know we're onto something cool. I'm going to talk about marketing for a moment here. Yeah. These days, if you have a product like a watch, you need to do marketing, of course. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's nobody has an infinite budget and you have to start somewhere. And it's very popular to work on social media with the influencer. Now, 
you're someone that probably, you know, just given your generation, uses social media a lot, and you're familiar with the pros and cons of what we'll call influence culture. I call mm-hmm. them opinion mercenaries. I don't have the highest visit, mm-hmm. you know, the, the highest opinion of it all. Because again, I, I, I'm not. I'm someone whose opinion is not for sale. My services are for sale, but mm-hmm. my opinion isn't. You have to earn that. And mm-hmm. when you give it away to the highest bidder, uh, mm-hmm. you know, people don't tend to trust uh, that type of behavior. So the question is, being a consumer yourself. Mm-hmm. What do you think are the right ways of using modern digital marketing, uh, you know, social media, blogs, like a blog to watch, whatnot? What's the, what's the right way for you to use those platforms to not, not only efficiently, but ethically transmit your message? Yeah, it's a very loaded and great question. Um, there's a lot of uh, fake news out there these days and a lot of people that are just buying uh, content and engagement and there's lots of easy and quick ways to kind of get to those objectives. Um, for us, um, it's always going back to the purpose. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier uh, this notion of powering your time. It's our kind of internal slogan, which is, are you kind of making the most of every second of your life and really passionately going after what brings meaning to you. And so we were really conscious when we were kind of extending and working with different partners, we call them our power players, um, that they really kind of represented what we wanted to uh, convey, which was this whole notion of celebrating the power of time. So um, to answer your question, uh, building a community of people that you know resonate with us that we want to support is something that I can stand behind. And hey, um, if there's a, a partnership that can come out of this, like awesome, uh, let's work together in the future. Um, so we look at it very much from a, a creative standpoint um, and less so, hey, I want to partner with this person for you know X number of likes. <laughs> so, so how does that translate into sort of what you do? If you, if you begin from the perspective of being creative, that means you're creating content and what you're you're hoping people pick it up or you're you're trying to see who identifies with you and you can work with just again you know talk to the other people out there that maybe not in the watch industry but have some other venture are in your mm-hmm. position know they need to do marketing and are utterly paralyzed as to where to start i mean i notice this all the time i mean i i'm a publisher right so i sell services to advertisers mm-hmm. and i speak with an enormous amount of people that are just terrified terrified yeah. at the idea of of, I don't actually know what they're worried about. If they want success, I think they just, they want it to be a science. They want there to be some type of way to create a plan around mm-hmm. effective marketing. And it just mm-hmm. doesn't work that way. <laughs> it's it's just, it's ongoing, painful experimentation. That's all it is. A lot and, of um, testing and a lot of testing, right? So so give, give a little bit of um, courage out there to other people in your position who are just terrified by this process. Yeah, we we were slow to start as well. And so I understand that kind of paralysis to try to get it right. And I think uh, that notion of having it to be perfect, like there's a saying out there that perfection gets in the way of great. Um, And so really just starting and figuring out what you can actually do in-house. There's a lot of tools, a lot of assets out there that uh, people can use. Um, we do a lot of things in-house. So a lot of the content that you see and create, Sunny does a lot of that uh, together with me. So uh, we're able to kind of learn as well as figure out what we need on the spot and just pump a lot of stuff out and start testing it. Um, so the advice would be um, work with someone that really um, aligns with your brand and just start 
putting it out there and the consumers are really going to give you that feedback. We have things that we thought were going to be awesome and we spent a lot of effort on. I'm like, oh, it didn't perform well and things that uh, were really quick that people really resonated with. And the more you put out there, the more you're going to learn um, and then you can get feedback on what's going to work um, and you can double down on those things. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the part of your statement that I want people to identify is just do something. Mm. You cannot guess if it's going to work. But if you never try anything, you're guaranteed not to succeed. And I'll add an additional element here. And that is, there's really no punishment for bad marketing. Like bad marketing won't get attention, won't get visibility. It's sort of like mumbling. Like no Mm -hmm. one's going to understand you, but no one's going to be like, I'm never going to listen to you ever again. Right. The way to resolve failed marketing is just try with a different message that might resonate better next time. And I think that companies today that are so painfully afraid of negative feedback are oversensitive. I mean, I, I'm not the first one to say it. We exist in a world today where sensitivity is high, and I get it. We're mm-hmm. all stressed out for a lot of good reasons. But people need to be afraid of evoking negative emotions in some people. You can't please everyone. It's more important that you put your message out there. More people are going to feel positive about your statement and never give you feedback. Mm -hmm. But the one person who has some problem with what you say and gives you feedback overwhelms you, overshadows Mm -hmm. everything positive. And people today, as you know, are probably oversensitive and they give too much importance to the negative feedback, ignoring Mm -hmm. the positive feedback. It's sort of like if there's a room of 100 people and you're a performer, and 95 of them clap, mm-hmm. and five don't, all mm-hmm. you seem to care about in that moment is the five people that don't. The other people that you made very happy, yeah. whatever reason, that doesn't matter to you. And maybe, and again, I don't know, but maybe it's good to just ignore the negative feedback. I mean, read it, take it into consideration. But sometimes, and I've had to learn this as a publisher, sometimes you just have to ignore it because you know that it's not right for you. Yeah. And I mean, starting a business is not easy. And I think like outside of all the negative speak that you could hear outside, there's a lot of internal uh, negative speak that happens. And it's a lot of thing, times that people don't talk about, but the the constant question of whether you're doing it right and what your identity is, is something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to. And if you don't have a solidified answer to those questions, um, it is really easy to kind of waver. And it takes constant work to remind yourself of why you're doing it, what your purpose is, and what you're bringing forth to the world. So um, I understand how hard it is. um, And it is something that I think all entrepreneurs need to kind of work through. So where do you get your entrepreneurial courage? It's funny. It's uh, We've been doing a lot of testing recently, and at times I feel lost. Uh, there's a lot of ideas, and sometimes you don't have all the answers. But every single time we um, waver, somehow we always go back to our original idea. The first idea, where we started, always was the clearest and gave us the, the most important path forward. And that's actually why we we named our collection OG Automatic, because it was the original. We want to go back to kind of the old school and bring back um, the, the first. And so I guess answer your question, just bringing it back to why we started it and reminding yourself of that constantly. 
So what are some questions that that you have? Maybe I can answer some things, right? Because I've I've been sort of on the uh, the expert side of this for 15 years. Mm-hmm. What are some of the questions you have right now that are on your mind that you'd love? And again, this isn't like something that I couldn't answer, like, you know, what's in your pocket right now? But, <laughs> you know, uh, just about what to expect, maybe. I, I'm curious. If there's nothing, that's that's fine. But, you know, I have been doing this for like 15 years. Oh, I have a lot of questions for sure. Um, I guess we'll start. I feel like the watch industry is kind of at a precipice right now. There's a lot of change. A lot of the trade shows are, are moving, for example. Um, how are you seeing kind of the, the next wave uh, for the industry? Uh, I mean, the problem is that that open-ended question will get me speaking for about seven hours straight. <laughs> so the next wave of, like, give me a little slice and I'll, I'll narrow it down there. Yeah, I guess even in 2022 um, and seeing kind of the the new watch releases, um, what are you kind of predicting in the future for this year? Well, I guess the first thing to say is that um, while there's a lot of strong areas of the industry, such as enthusiasm from you know entrepreneurs like yourself, as well as demand for consumers, from a structural perspective, the industry is in, in, in a state of chaos. Mm-hmm. And it's because the pandemic was sort of like the final straw in completely destroying the old structure of the watch industry. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of as though you built like a nice little sandcastle and then like a giant wave comes and just like blows it away. The sand is all there still, mm-hmm. but the structure is gone. And that's really kind of the position we're in right now with the watch industry in a lot of ways. The corporate groups... Um, you know, they used to sell massive amounts of watches to department stores, for example. Mm-hmm. What's going on with that? Mom and pop jewelry stores. Not a whole lot of that. Now they've been told, hey, everyone, rather than selling thousands of units in wholesale, you have to sell watches one at a time to finicky consumers on the internet who have literally infinite options when it comes to buying things to make them feel good, mm-hmm. let alone watches. Okay. So um, good luck um, trying to make the same money and using the same structure you had as a wholesaler of products to also be a marketing company that has to like make individual customers happy and then follow up with emails on a regular basis and special events and things like that. And all these insane investments you need to do to, to capture these people's attention. Good luck with that. Mm-hmm. That has completely upended everything from uh, the types of employees they have the, the way they have to spend money, and there's no model for them. These are companies that like to have models to follow. They're like, just tell me yeah. the way of doing it. Well, sorry, <clears throat> there's no way of doing it right now. You have to figure it out. And most of them are not set up for that. Mm-hmm. So it requires the creatives and the ones that can really spend and invest to find the models, which haven't been found yet, which yeah. can then be replicated by the, the more conservative ones, and then you build an industry again. And so, I mean, for example, right now we have this practice of watch brands like constantly releasing new releases. Yep. And they think this is the best thing in the world. It's disaster mm-hmm. because consumers can't make any decisions. Yeah. You know, like imagine if like Christmas happened every week, you could never buy anything. You'd freak out. It's too okay? much. <laughs> it's too much. And yep. so that's what the brands are like. They're like, just constantly release stuff. Consumers are just, you know, consumers can't buy 47 watches a year. I mean, the ones that can are tiny, and and I wouldn't build a business model around that. 
Mm-hmm. And so, when your cadence is so fast, that's where your creativity time is going to be shortchanged, right? I mean, are, the, the, a lot of media people now like to joke a little bit about Seiko and Grand Seiko. Great brands, but mm-hmm. they re- literally release new watches like every week. Okay, mm-hmm. if you're Grand Seiko and your whole thing is these like great limited editions, and you have a new one every two weeks, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm just going to sit back and literally only buy if it's like the perfect one for me, which is never going to happen. Mm-hmm. So they're they're excited, like, oh, constant media coverage. We don't have to spend as much on advertising. Okay, but now you're basically making like nervous wrecks out of consumers. Yeah. So that's another complicating factor. So as you can see. The watch industry is in this very big state of change. The everything from the way to market to the way to sell uh, is is evolving. Yes, uh, what was a great watch yesterday will still be a great watch tomorrow. So not too much has changed in terms of consumer expectations of what they want to wear in their wrist. Mm-hmm. But how to get it there and who to sell to um, is weird. And think, look, we don't know when travel is going to return. Travel was such a big part of the watch industry, yeah. and. And that's because people like to buy stuff when they're traveling and on a good mood. It's it's a mm-hmm. thing. We've all done it. Um, you know, we have this state of mind where we get into cons- this consumer state of mind. It's sort of like once we start shopping, we want to keep doing it. That's why the department store concept made so much sense. Because yeah. it's like, well, I'm in the mood to buy stuff. And while I'm in the mood to buy stuff, look at all this other cool stuff I can do. Um Finding consumers when they're in that mood is harder than ever because it, when they're in the store, you know. Mm-hmm. But when they're on the couch on their phone, you have no idea what mood they're in. Exactly. It, it's it's so hard. And that's why, again, this is up upending all of the traditional structure and expectations of how consumers operate and things like that. It's just all over the place. And so big companies who have like shareholders, they're like screech the brakes on the watch stuff. Mm-hmm. They're like, we have no idea what we're doing. They're like, there's something there. We get it. But like, let's let the little guys figure it out because they're going to figure out the models that we can then copy and we'll buy them when they seem to be onto something. I mean, look at Movado mm-hmm. that purchased MVMT. Right. Yeah, this was a very big sale. MVMT was a brand that uh, was started here in Los Angeles by uh, some some people who wanted to do a lifestyle brand and had yeah. nothing to do with watches. They were like, people love pictures of other people having fun on social media. And we'll just stick a product in pictures of other people having fun on social media and we'll build a brand that way. And they did. And it would work great. And then Mavatha bought them for like some crazy amount of money, like $100 million or something like that. Mm-hmm. Not because there was anything remarkable about the product, but because they had a model that on the outside was something you could copy for maybe a brand like Movado. Right. Um, whether or not that worked out is an entirely different story. But you see huge investments in just the idea that, oh, hey, you figured out something about selling watches that we don't know because we mm-hmm. haven't figured this stuff out. And there are no models. And, and think about it, there's no like Neiman Marcuses uh, in any in any well-developed way for like the internet. You're yep. starting to have it more and more a little bit, but no one knows like that website is your high-end place. Like what's the luxury version of Amazon? It doesn't really exist. Not in America. <laughs> And it's ultimately still a digital screen, right? Yeah. So it's a very different buying experience than actually having the the watch on your wrist, uh, which is something that's so important when you're buying a timepiece. Yeah, so that physical experience, that tactile one of saying, this is what it looks like on me. And and look, I there's the smile test, and you've seen it. Does mm-hmm. the watch make you smile? Exactly. And if it doesn't, 
you can't you can't guess in advance. You have to actually put on your wrist, lift it up to your face, and see what your face does. Exactly. So I'm curious, Errol. You have a few of our watches over there. What are what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I I really like the fact that you did everything custom, right? Uh, you pointed out to the fact that there's nothing outside uh, that was like you know stock stock parts or anything like that. You have a lot of the same tastes I do, so I see a lot of the inspirations and things like that. Like, um, you know, Frank Muller, I think, did the crocodile dial with crocodile strap. And such a cool look, but you shouldn't have to spend like, I don't know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars on it. So okay. I'm glad to see more of that because it works well. So I like a lot of the curation. Um, you know, you have I don't remember exactly which movement this is. This is one of the smaller automatics one. Uh, so you can turn it over and you can see it's an automatic, it's petite. Um, and that's I think fun. I think that, you know especially for the, the female wear who doesn't get that experience a lot. Um, mm-hmm. That's really nice. And it's, it's, I hate to say, but it's cute, right? Because it's like, if you look at the men's watch, it's like the bigger one. And this is like a smaller version of it. And let's be honest, a lot of people like miniaturized things, like right? And so to see one of these smaller edits, brands usually hide this, mm-hmm. right? Because they're like, we don't want everyone to see how little the movement is. <laughs> and But here, it makes sense. So I, I, I think that's nice. Um, the, the white dial one is actually really great from a legibility perspective because I like that there's a contrast there. So I think that one of the hardest things that people have when starting a brand is that sense of understanding how light plays with the materials on their dials. Very, mm-hmm. very difficult to do. And you have to make many iterations of your products to get that right. So I'm, you know, I'm going to be forgiving as much as possible um, on a lot of these things. You know, I don't know how I feel about this notion of unisex because I like making wearing men's watches. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no problem if women wear the same watch as I do, but as a guy, I guess I've been trained to get ma- manly things. Mm-hmm. And what we notice is that as women start to adopt something that was traditionally men, men will go the other direction. Um, you know, the Daytona like started being worn by a lot of women, and then men are like, I need a larger chronograph. Mm-hmm. So you have this behavior where it's like once women adopt something, men just get something bigger and more aggressive. <laughs> like, like, so, you know, I, I like to, I like some of the separations, but there is a large market out there that maybe, you know, wants something that isn't defined. So that's nice. So I, I, I do agree that you have something that can be worn by both, you know, genders, mm-hmm. especially depending on the way you style it. Yeah. You know? And it also depends on kind of where you're wearing it too. Um, you know, as they get bigger, um, there's only certain occasions also that it works. And so wanted to also create something that could work for you kind of every day, depending on no matter where you're going. Yeah. I, you know, I, I loved seeing people wearing basically like maybe a Cartier tank, right. Or Hermes was very popular with their similar rectangular ones. Mm-hmm. And especially for people who are very fashion forward, when you wear a lot of soft clothing and things like that, that's very curvy, and they have this angular thing on your wrist from a fashion perspective, it creates this wonderful contrast, mm-hmm. which is, again, it depends on what you're, what, how you dress, but I, it, it actually has a very good look to it. So the fact that it's not a round case, I think, has a lot of value. And there's not a lot of watches quite like this on the market at this particular quality level, price point, design. Um, it's... It's a contemporary watch, which is very much about how you know you want to dress today. I think that what I also like about this is if you were raised in the social media world on like minimalist watches, this is something you can wrap your mind around. And I know that there's a lot of people that didn't grow up with complicated Patek Philippe's, like they grew up with seeing, you know, uh, Daniel Wellington. Mm-hmm. And so to get them into something a little bit higher end, you have to be something that's familiar to them. 
And so a lot of traditionalists in the watch space haven't really been able to wrap their mind around this, but they didn't grow up learning about watches from Facebook ads. Right. right. So that's that's a that's a whole other thing. And then finally, you know, the sticker on the dial I really admire because it essentially is a reminder to wind the the crown. And I'm sure you found this out, but there's so many people that do not understand how an automatic movement operates. They they sometimes don't realize it's not battery powered and they think their watch is dead when you know you have to just wind it and wear it and, and all that. So I actually have never seen a watch that has a reminder like that. And again, this is from someone who's been buying electronics in their life, right? I'm sure you've got electronics and there's little notes and things like that on mm -hmm. push this button to get started. And and I like that. I like seeing, you know, because it tells me a little bit about who designed it and what they're thinking and that it's important to have a, a, an, a, an explanatory out-of-the-box experience. So is that enough feedback for you? Yeah, that was great. And I, I love kind of the things that you're interested in. Uh, yeah, the sticker was really important to us because we were like, uh, maybe people would think the watch is broken if uh, it's kind of one of their first automatic watches. Um, and we also spent a lot of time on the full experience. Um, I think in the package that you got, um, the watch came on the watch stand with the watch box. Okay, I see, I see. No, the package was just this, but I, I remember the watch stand. I got that earlier. Oh, yes, yes. So uh, when we were thinking about that piece, um, we were like, it doesn't make sense to create a box that people just throw away or just keep. Why don't we actually create something that could be useful? So our watches all get shipped with kind of a, a vegan leather watch stand so that if you are wearing it every day, you take it off, it looks good in your home as well as on your wrist. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really glad we had this discussion. Jess, we're out of time. You've, you've been um, very, uh, very informative, and I really appreciate the fact that you diving into this conversation, especially with the brand being still so fresh. One last time, tell everyone where to follow you, what the website is, any any last uh, information you want to you wanna plug. Absolutely. So we're Viren, V-I-E-R-E-N. Our Instagram is at Viren Time. And our website is Viren.co, where you can check out our limited edition collection, uh, OG Automatic. Thank you so much, Jess. And this is me again, Ariel Adams. Thank you for listening to the Superlative Podcast. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablog2watch.com. <laughs>